Welcome to Improv Interviews. This is Margot Escott, and I am delighted to introduce you to one of the great gifts I've been meeting, Lenny Ravage. Lenny is an actor, a teacher, a improviser, a humorist, and an author. But above all, he's a tremendous individual who's brought humor and laughter to so many people. We found seven degrees of separation when we realized we had both studied with wonderful folks like Matt Weinstein and Joel Goodman, Nick Goodhart, and Steve Wilson of the World Laughter Tour. Lenny has produced many wonderful workshops that he's given all over the world. One is called Humor as a Way of Life, and he gives many workshops on humor and laughter throughout the world. He's a wonderful author, and he's written A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Enlightenment, and he has a new book being published soon on Kindle, Everlasting Optimism. I know that you will enjoy Lenny as much as I have. He embodies this quote from Ram Das: You can dance life or you can drag it. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. Well, thank you, Margo, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> We were talking about how our power paths have had similar, uh, we've traveled on a similar path not taken, I guess. Yes. Uh, we, we studied uh, under a shock therapist. Uh, I studied under a shock therapist. Uh, the originator, his wife, Laura Pearls, um, and I studied with her, and I also uh, was an actor in, in New York, I was a Shakespearean actor. And uh, as I mentioned, I went to the Board of Education because I had a BA in uh, English Literature. And I was looking for extra work because uh, as an actor, uh, you have to have what is called a day job. Because you're out of work most of the time. And so I asked them if I could become a substitute teacher for the New York City school system. And I received a certificate and I was getting calls to come in uh, to different schools. And I think this is really cool because if I get an audition or something and one school calls me up and says, uh, our teacher is missing, can you get down here to Brooklyn within an hour and a half or something? I could always say, I'm really sorry, I have an audition call me tomorrow. As time went on, I found myself doing the opposite. I found myself telling people who were inviting me for an audition, I'm sorry, I got a classroom today because I just fell in love with teaching. And uh, so we do have similar backgrounds in that case. Also, your connection with the Association of uh, Applied Therapeutic Humor. We're both members at different times, uh, and also we just discovered humor through common uh, teachers of, of ours, uh, Joe Goodman and Matt Weinstein, and with the games and things that we both learned from them. And so, uh, and also I met a, a person in an improv a workshop who knew you and sent me one of the interviews that you did with a fellow from Jerusalem, uh, who I did reserve duty with his father. His father's name was Joe Romanelli. And you did an interview with um, his son. Oh, I did and not know that fact. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, his father was with me uh, during during a reserve duty, and um, he called. He, he wrote to me and said, "If he's ever in Tel Aviv, we've got to get together because 
uh, paths that are also very similar in many ways. And uh, also in, in the field of uh, the theater improvisation, um, and you, you studied also laughter, yoga laughter, with Steve Wilson and I did as well, and with Dr. Terry. So we have a lot, a lot of things in common. And I think this is wonderful for our first day. I think so too. <laughs> and you know, like there'll be more first days like this. I know. It's like we don't need seven degrees. We're like right there next to each other. So in your wonderful book that's going to be published in on Kindle soon, I believe. Is that correct? It's going to be published at Amazon. Kindle, which is called uh, Everlasting Optimism. And uh, I loved writing it. And um, people who have read it, I've given it to several people. It came out as a book several years ago uh, here in Israel uh, with the title of um, the same title, but I, I called it in English A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Enlightenment, which my wife thought was. Too long for a title. She was right, and uh, so that I, I sold that for a while. That's on Amazon. But if somebody wants the Kindle edition, which is uh, much much uh, cheaper than getting it um, the hard copy, uh, it'll be out probably around um, around December. You know, around maybe the beginning of December. Things became exactly. I mean, there was no difference when I took the pills. 
after two weeks, everything's the same, only slower. And uh, I would spend the whole day uh, focusing just on my shoe. And uh, I wasn't fooling around in class anymore. And they even brought my father in to see the educational progress, watching a kid looking at his shoe. That was the only thing that interested me. And I got my best uh, grades as long as I was taking pills because I was quiet. But uh, eventually I got into college, and that's a very, very interesting story as well. <laughs> I, I put it in my book. Um, and I received, I went to Emerson College in Boston, uh, which is a school for the theater as well as uh, language literature and uh, also speech therapy. And I finally, finally got my BA in uh, English literature so that I was allowed to teach English for the uh, school system in New York, the New York school system. Uh, while I was an actor, if you want me to go on, um, I got the feeling that I wanted to travel and I didn't have any money. I just needed some adventure. I was, I, I was tired of going to auditions and I was tired of being uh, a Shakespearean actor. And I met a friend who said, if you're looking to travel and you don't have any money, go to the Jewish agency on Park Avenue and tell them you want to go to Israel and become a resident and you'll get a free ticket on Al Al. You know what Al Al stands for. Every landing always late. Uh, she said that you could also learn Hebrew for free for six months, and they would give me a place to live and food and everything to help me out to become a resident. And I didn't even know where Israel was. I had to go to the library. In those days, you didn't have smartphones. Uh, what, so I have to... I have, what year was this? 1964. Uh-huh. 63, actually, because I remember the death of Kennedy... Uh, Kennedy assassination uh, influenced my wanting to leave for a while. I was very much uh, moved by that experience. His, his, he, he represented a lot for me as a as a president of the United States. And when he was assassinated, I became rather depressed. And um, so I went to the library to find out where where Israel was, to find out where I'm going. And I opened the map so I could see Egypt, and I could see Syria, and I could see Lebanon, and I could see Jordan, but I couldn't find Israel. Until I went out into the Mediterranean Sea, and it said in the Mediterranean Sea, the word Israel with an arrow pointing back to a place that was so small, they couldn't write the word Israel in it. So I said, that looks cool. I mean, I didn't know we had any enemies. I didn't know what was, I mean, I didn't know Egypt at that time was an enemy or, or Lebanon or Jordan. I thought that everybody just loves Jews, you know. Very, very innocent person, especially after the Second World War. And um, so I went down to the Jewish agency and I said, can I have my free ticket? I want to go to become a resident of Israel. So the representative said to me, sit down, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, do you have any family there? I said, no. Have any friends there? I said, no. He said, do you speak Hebrew? I said, no. He said, what is your profession? 
was a Shakespearean after all. He gets up and he says, you're going to succeed big time. And I said, how do you know? And he was very confident about this. He said, well, it says in the book of David, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is that I can show you where it says that God protects schmucks like you. <laughs> it doesn't say the word schmuck. It uses a different word, but in Hebrew, it's something like an innocent fool you know, just goes someplace, he doesn't even know the language, he doesn't know the people, doesn't know anything, just goes, takes that leap of faith, knowing that everything was going to work out okay. And so I came and um, uh, studied Hebrew for a while, I went to a kibbutz and see, kibbutz was very, very interesting, it was a very, very communistic, you know, everything, everything was equal, everybody worked for free, and everything was done for free, your laundry was done for free, for your work, you know, you, you did a day's work, you got three meals a day, your laundry, uh, if you got ill, you went to the clinic, and everything was just, I mean, uh, perfect, perfect communism. But I uh, loved it in the beginning, and I thought it was, wow, this is ideal. But when it began to infringe on my own uh, liberty, and coming from the United States, I mean, we, we we so worship and idolize freedom, you realize how much you don't have in a socialistic setup or communistic setup that the state or the kibbutz takes over your life and you can't even buy something or study something without the approval of the um, administrators or whatever who was running for the place at that time. So I went to a place called A Lot. I took the bus. I hope I'm not boring you. Oh my gosh, you... no. I'm totally fascinated. Okay, I got to all day. No. And I go down to A Lot, which is on the Gulf of Aqaba, and you can look across the Red Sea and see Jordan perfectly. Yes, yes. And I had no idea that we were uh, at odds with each other. I just, you know. Just looked over there and saw this beautiful place. <laughs> uh, November the 5th, 1965, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I got this feeling, and I don't know where it came from, but the feeling said or, or, or presented itself, go to the beach right now, go to the shore, and sit there, your wife is waiting for you. This is exactly 3 o'clock. I looked at the, at the clock, November the 5th, 3 o'clock, Friday. I said, okay, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of guy, you know, leap of faith. I hear this voice is whatever it's like. My wife is waiting at the beach. Okay. What's the worst that can happen? Don't tell me. So I go to the beach, and I'm sitting there, and I hear this woman talking, and without even looking at her, that's her. And I turned around and I saw her. And I said, how do I introduce myself? Hello, my name is Lenny and I'm your husband. I mean, that would like knock her off her feet. I didn't want to do that. So I was enjoying the movie that I knew the script and she didn't. It's like, you know what's going to happen. I know she's going to be my wife. I know nothing about her. I don't know her parents. I don't even know her last name. Mm -hmm. 
But you're in a situation where you know what's going to happen and she doesn't, and I'm smiling and I'm laughing and I'm having a great time. Because you're watching a movie with somebody that doesn't know he's never seen that movie before, and I know exactly what's going to happen. And we went out that evening to hear a guitar player, and we had we just spent the whole evening just talking all day, talking. And she said to me, I, "I live in Jerusalem, and I have a bus tomorrow at four o'clock in the afternoon. I have to get on that bus." And I said, "Okay, uh, can I help you with your luggage?" And she said, "Yeah, I'm staying at this my girlfriend's aunt's place, and she lives right over there." So at three fifteen or something, I came took her suitcases and walked her over to the bus stop. And I said, what am I going to tell her? She doesn't know. So she gets on the bus and I say to myself, I got to tell her. So I bring the suitcases and, you know, you put the suitcases on top. It used to be a, a place where you put the suitcases. I looked down at her. She looked up at me and I said, go home and tell your parents you're getting married. And in those days, you didn't have a phone. I know very few people had a phone. Uh, you had to use a public phone. She had a phone in her home because her father was an official uh, for the post office. And doctors had a phone, policemen had a phone, and post office officials had a phone. Doctors had phones. But nobody else did. Everybody was using everybody else's phone. So I said, what time do you get to Jerusalem? And she said, midnight. I said, give me your number. I want to call you and make sure that everything's okay so I'm coming up next week. And um, I had to go out of my house at around 11.30 and start looking for a phone, and it was a, it was a fish restaurant. And <laughs> Yossi's Fish Restaurant. And people are standing in line, and you put in a, a token, and you make a call. And I got the phone, and I put the token in. And I call her, and they're screaming and yelling in her house. Everybody's up, everybody's drinking. Once she's got eight brothers and sisters. And I never came from a family that large. I mean, I, I, uh, I came. I had a sister, and she was an only child. But that's another story. Uh, and so it comes to such a large family. I said, I'm coming up next week. And I flew up to Tel Aviv. Probably about flew up. And then from there, I took the bus to Jerusalem and had her brother immediately. She brought her brother to the bus station. Very nice looking fellow. And I didn't know what a Sephardic Jew was. I didn't know the, the Jews from Spain. I thought the Jews only spoke Yiddish because I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. And any Jew that would meet another Jew anywhere, they would speak Yiddish. He was from Romania or he was from Russia or he was from the Ukraine or whoever from South America. He spoke Yiddish. And I didn't know there was such a thing as the Moranos, the Jews that were expelled from Spain, and her family is that line. So I met this incredible family, and they accepted me so beautifully. I had never had this kind of a, a love and, and affection, and, and it was just lovely. And I took her father to the other room, and of course, the whole family, all eight children, you know, the mother and grandmother all had their ears to the keyhole. And I said, open up your diary. I want to know when is the first day you can get married. And he opens up his diary. He said, the first day you can get married. Now, this is November the 
I met her on the 5th, so it would be the 12th. This is November the 12th, I was just going to get married next week. He said, no, it's Hanukkah. He said, the earliest you can get married is the 21st. I said, write that down. That was 62 years ago. We're still together. And we've had quite a ride. Quite a ride. Of course, if you test her, her side of the story, it'll be a lot different. She has a different version. But uh, that's, most of my, that's most of my life. I'm just taking that leap of faith, just listening to that, you know, this is the time to do this, this is the time to do that. Uh, when you asked me if I did tell in Christ, and I said no, I heard so many wonderful things about it, and I never did it because that, there wasn't that, that thing inside of me that said, go for it. When I read the South, I felt vibrations in my body. When I heard about the association of applied therapeutic humor, I said, that's it, I'm going, I'm going. And I'm going to study with Laura Pearls. I'm going to study with Dr. Katari and Steve Wilson and Joel Goodman and Matt Weinstein and study all these things. I didn't know why. And, uh, but that, that, that was, that's more or less how I, I live my life. It's just hanging on. To uh, you know, it's like war scene. Then you hang on, and you're in the here and now, and you can go this far this way, and you can go this far this way, but you go where the boat goes, and that <laughs> that's been more or less my my line to to the spirit. Just keep holding on to that line, you know, I and it's been a wonderful, I... wonderful life. I've had terrible things happen to me, but they were wonderful too. <laughs> And that good heart, right? Yes, yeah. And uh, her book, her boat, Tee Hee. But um, you know, the, the basis of improv is acceptance, and they talk about yes and. And so you've lived a yes and life. You say yes and I'm going to do it when it feels right, and you and you take those risks, and that's such a beautiful thing. And yes, some bad things, some good things. You know the story about uh, good luck, bad luck. The one about the. You've heard that one, uh, right? Yeah, well, that's terrible. Well, you, you never know. Huh? And then it said, it, when, when it said you're, of course, you're on the way. Yes, yes. It's all that terrible. You never know. And the horse comes back with another horse. Oh, that's great luck. You never know. <laughs> it keeps going on like that. You never know. You never know. And I knew that you would know that story. So um, you, you talked a little bit about what attracted you to Gestalt uh, therapy. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, like, how old were you when you were introduced to it? And what was going on in your life when you were first exposed to Gestalt? Well, uh, I had just come back. See, my wife and I, in 1967, uh, decided we had, we had a son then. He was six months old. His name is Nath, and um, just, my sister wrote to me and said, I never had the opportunity of seeing your real wife. And my mother was also in, in Birmingham, Alabama. She said, come out, you stay at my place until you find a place and you can find a job. And so took the leap and went to Birmingham, Alabama. Now, Birmingham, Alabama is a, is a strange animal. Because at that time, there was uh, apartheid. I mean, there were the black uh, 
ears and black schools and black water fountains and black toilets and white toilets only on the bus with black tents in the back of the white in the front. It was, it was total a mess all through the South, not only Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana. And in 1967, there was a court order from Washington saying schools must be integrated. Now, when I got to Birmingham, there was no such thing as a male teacher, a male white teacher. Uh, if you saw a male white teacher, he was a teacher because he was really a coach, the football coach, the basketball coach, and they had him teach history, head teachers. And so there were mostly women because the pay scale in Alabama, Jefferson County, was $500 a year more than the poverty level. So people who teach, were teaching were making $500 above the poverty level. And so when I went to the Board of Education, they said, you know, here I am, white, Jewish, male. Are you willing to go to a black school uh, and become the first white teacher in the history? of Alabama to go to a white school because we can't, we can't get volunteers. I said, of course. And I didn't care about the pay. I just knew that that's the place where I had to be. My wife at the same time got a job uh, teaching Hebrew at one of the Hebrew schools, Jewish day schools. And uh, I saw what talent I had there. Um, I heard them singing. I heard them I saw them dancing, and I said, would you guys like to do a musical called Guys and Dolls? And they said, well, we saw that on television. You, you, you want to do that? So I went to the principal, and I said, can I do a musical? He said, whatever you want, I'll give you all the support you need. And I had auditions, and they were amazing. And we did the first musical in 1967, 1968, I think it was. It was also the year that Martin Luther King was, was assassinated. And it was amazing. They did Guys and Dolls in such an amazing show. It was such a joy to direct them. And then the next year I said, okay, guys, we're going to do Music Man. And some reason, God or somebody in space out there heard me because what's appearing on television, how many stations do you get in Birmingham at that time, in the 60s, uh, the music man is on, and everybody's watching it. And we did that, and then Bye Bye Birdie. And I got my master's degree uh, at a place called Sanford University in, in Birmingham. Now, this is a Baptist university. Uh, people usually study to become a pastor. But they had a program in education for, for uh, MA. So I go there, and I give them my records, and they said, we can't accept you. And I said, why? And they said, because you have a 78 average, and in order to study for an MA, you have to have an 84 average. Now, I know I'm going to study it. It's like I knew I was going to marry my wife. OK, so i got to go through this movie. Okay, let me speak to the president. Okay, I know I'm going to study there because it's going to happen. You just know. So, you want to see the president? 
of the universe? I said, yeah, I'm not talking to a person. They never had a request like this from one of the students. So they make an appointment with me, and Dr. Allen is sitting here in his office, and he takes my record, he has my records, and he throws them across the desk. And he says, you can't be accepted. You don't have an 84 average, you have 78 from your, from your BA. And I don't know where it came from. I didn't prepare. It was a yes and moment. I looked at him and I said, is this a Baptist university? He said, yes. I said, tell me, if Jesus Christ was sitting where you are now, would he accept me? Don't know where it came from. I just knew that I was going to send you there, and the script came. Mm -hmm. And he goes like, you know, you see his body language. You know, he was getting all, okay, on condition, boom. <laughs> and I got in, and I got my master's degree. And after four years of spending at Winona High School, which is an all-black school, white teachers began to come in. They saw that I was there, and I'm still alive. One day, the Black Panthers came to my class. That was the day after Martin Luther King was killed. And all of a sudden, I didn't realize what was happening, but I'm sitting at my desk in the classroom, and the entire football team is standing around my desk. I said, what are you guys doing here? He said, Mr. Rathers, we're not going to let them get you. They're coming after you. We're not going to let them. And they stood around my desk like this, like a, like a football, you know, they're... And the black bathroom came into my classroom and started to throw furniture around and stuff. And I was looking at this as if, no, this is not real. This is the news. You know, this. And one of the guys stands up on my desk from the black bathroom. He said, points to me. You know, he's up on my desk. He's pointing down to me. He said, this is the white man who sends the black man to beat me, to kill the yellow man. He's dead. And the kids were looking at him, and the football team was looking at me, just making sure that I wasn't going to get hurt in any way. And the guy on, on, the, on, the, on my desk looked down at me as if I was going to say, Fellow here, fellow here, not here this young man. And I didn't do anything, I just looked at him and said, That's cool. You know, that's pretty good. White man sends the black man to Vietnam to kill the young man. I'm the devil. Cool. And I was just. I was, it's a beautiful script. Yes, and. So he finally leaves and says, come out with me and let's march for Martin Luther King. One student left. And uh, I just wanted to put that in as one of my adventures. Mm -hmm. And when I got my master's degree, I got a call from the University of Alabama. They wanted me to be a speech and drama um, lecturer, or what do they call it, uh, instructor. And that was heaven. That was absolutely heaven. By this time, I had three children. And I realized something. If I stay in America, my children get my sister. My mother had died in 73. In 72. It was not 1973. And the only half family I had was my sister. I said, what do my children get? An aunt. If they go back to Israel, they get a grandmother, a great-grandmother, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, you name it. If you're going to make a decision like this, to go back to the, from the richest country in the world, one of the smallest, poorest countries in the world, 
you got to have a pretty good reason and family for me and for my wife we have the same values uh, about family and she agreed to come back to Israel and um, when I came when we came back uh, I was offered a job in Nazareth to be a supervisor for English teachers and uh, I often tell people I was in a special education class and they said but you're a supervisor of teachers and I said yeah well, that shows you the level of education here in Israel <laughs> so that brought me to uh, just when I picked up you were saying how did I get to the shop a friend of mine who's a psychologist living in another village next to mine said I think you'd like this book and he gave me the book called uh, The South Therapy Verbatim by Chris Pearls right. Right. I couldn't put that book down I read it again. There was something about this that was missing in my life as a director. As a director, I like to get into their emotions. I like to get into people's uh, authenticity. And I never saw anything so authentic as this. This was true improvisation. True improvisation. To go with the moment, to go with the feeling, to go with the experience. My whole body began to vibrate and said, this is who I am now, this is who I'm going to be. I went to New Orleans, to the South Institute of New Orleans and studied there, got a degree, a uh, certificate, and they said, where's my certificate? The South Institute of New Orleans, this is to certify the Leonard E. Ravitch, and satisfactorily completed the hours that I needed. So I come back to Israel, and the first thing I do, I'm living up in Nazareth, which is right near Haifa, I open up an institute. And I didn't really have the experience. I just had a, a few classes in, in, in New Orleans, and I said, I have to do this. I have to take that leap of faith. I'm going to get killed. You know, but there's no such thing as going into battle and not coming back with scars if you don't die. And that really happened as well. But uh, spiritually, anyway. But uh, that was that was the thing that brought me and attracted me to Kishal was that it is actually a therapy of improvisation. You don't have a theory or analysis. You don't use your mind. You don't ask questions about the past. You're not an you're not an archaeologist. You're with a person here and now. What is going on here and now? Because the healing is in the, in the, um, Martin Buber calls it the eye vow. Right. It's right. in the moment. Right. Because I'm checking a person how they're communicating with me. And I had to go to therapy myself, which is a very interesting story. Because uh, I went to therapy because I said, I can't, I can't take care of other people. I don't go to therapy. <laughs> so I did therapy, and I talked a lot about my wife and my therapist says, uh, I want to meet your wife. So I go home and I said, my therapist wants to meet you. My wife is a psychiatric social worker. Yeah. And she, said, she says, it's not going to help. <laughs> I said, that's great advice for me from a psychiatric social worker. She finally agreed. And we went in there. 
And the next week, I went to my therapist and she said, you know, Kenny, you're a very, very outgoing person and you're almost on the edge of madness. But when you're with your wife, you're like this very quiet introvert. I said, I didn't notice that. I went home. I told my wife, my therapist says that I'm, without you, I'm magnified 100%. And when I'm with you, I'm like, a turtle, I mean, a, a, what do you call it, a, a turtle in a hailstorm. And she looks over and she says, oh, Jack! <laughs> <laughs> so when people ask me, how did you last so long in your marriage, 52 years? And I say it's because of the most marvelous emotion in the world. Fear. She's afraid to be alone, and I'm afraid of her, definitely afraid. Stare out of my She walks in, the first thing I do is I start to shake. I mean, I, it's, it's such fear, I have no idea. And I think any man who admits that, you know, I, I, look, at, I look at women in general, or people in general, but mostly women, as perfect. I never met an imperfect woman. I can find plenty of perfect men, but I never met an imperfect woman. So I, whatever my wife says to me, uh, we, we should be ready at six. I said, whatever you said. She said, why don't you give me what you think? I said, because you're perfect. Everything you decide is perfect. She said, well, the reason I want to go is six. I said, don't explain. Perfect people don't have to explain anything. You said six, I'm ready at six. That's it. So it's from fear. I love being afraid. I love it. our dear friend Ram Das coined many years ago. A beautiful, and uh, Ram Das's work with death and dying is something incredible. Um, oh, very impressed. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. Me too. How did he impact you, Lenny? Well, I was sitting in the shop at that time. I was also um, facilitating workshops when I read this book. And it was a, a true Gestalt experience because the man was living another life. He was living an academic life. And suddenly this change came over him when he realized that this is not who I am. And the shell fell off. And he went on a spiritual journey. Uh, to Tibet, was it, wherever he went, and look for his guru. And when he found his guru, it was like when I found my wife. It was exactly the same kind of thing. He knew it, that this man is going to be his guru. And his whole, his whole um, he had a, 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 something happen to him, a, a heart attack or something, or, or a, a brain injury or something. Something happened uh, lately about I said lately, eight, ten years ago, and it, it, it affected his speech. But he, for me, was a real person. And this, and going with the shop together, it, it's sort of like everything came together, everything met together. And at that time, if you remember, back in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, right um, the writing of that book, music began to change around the world. Uh, you had uh, the Beatles doing their you know, India stuff. 
You had um, people who were playing from soul. They weren't playing just for the money, but what it's become, you know, just let's sell these records that get you on TV that stretches like this, with your hair like that. It was really soul music. Unfortunately, a lot of the uh, artists uh, burnt themselves out and died very young. But that was a change in music and a change in the whole civilization of the United States. It was called the, what was called the uh, Flower Children at that time, the Flower Children. And um, things began to change rapidly and then they went back to, back to where they were before. Right. Well, it, it, was the, it was the years of tune in, turn on, and drop out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yes. Tim, Timothy, what was his name? Leary? Leary? Oh, Timothy Leary, yes, and the big LSD experience, and of course. But I was yeah. one of those flower, I was at Woodstock, I was one of those flower children. All you need yeah. is love, but you do need to pay the rent sometimes. So, uh, but you know, this spiritual revolution that started going around the world and is still going on in places, even here in the States, I believe, we have this term mindfulness that has been so big, a big catchword. And of course, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, it's wonderful, his work. But mindfulness predates all this the concept of be here now and gestalt predates this fascination with what we're calling mindfulness today because that's what we're, we had learned years ago. Uh, do, you, do you agree or disagree? Point, counterpoint. Well, I do agree. Mindfulness is actually what I learned when I said gestalt. Right. It's, it, then we used to call it awareness. To be, to, to what, what was said about was just becoming aware and make make choices from that aware place, not from the automatic uh, recording in my head or something, or what my parents told me, what my grandparents told me. Um, it, it, uh, it, it comes from a place of choice. When, when you become mindful, Today they call it mindfulness. In Gestalt they call it awareness. Uh, the Zen Buddhists call it awakening. You become awake. Right. Um, it's all the same thing. It's about being aware or being mindful of what is going on in the here and now. What am I experiencing in the here and now? Uh, I don't know if you saw my, my YouTube talk in Geneva. Uh, where I talk about mindfulness and education. Uh, if you go to YouTube, okay. you can just write my name and type in mindfulness and education, okay. and I give a talk on that. And I also have audience participation. Um, you can watch that as well. It's like improvisation. I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean by improvisation. Um, how do I introduce it to an audience? These are children and teachers in Geneva for the international school. It's a huge audience, maybe close to a thousand people. And I was introducing them to the concept of that education teaches the mind a lot, but there's not enough teaching of the heart. And where are our decisions being made? And where does how do you raise a family from your intellect? You raise children. I have nine grandchildren now. I can't be intellectual with them. Uh, so I, I taught I, on the stage. If you go to see that, I, I talk about the fact that 
there are two things going on that I learned in Yishat when you're talking to somebody or having a meeting, what they call a meeting, dialogue. There's the content, and then there's the process. The process is all about the body language, the skin color, the eyes, what happens to the eyes, the heartbeat, you can feel that. You can actually sense someone's feelings. You, be, you develop an empathy, which is so much missing in our education system. And, uh, and so what I did was I, I said, I want to give you an example of that. How do you teach the heart? And I'm just going to give you a small smidgen of an example. And I said, who speaks a language other than German, Italian, because that's what they speak there, English, French, who speaks another language? A child raises his hand, he's from India. He says, I speak Hindi. I invite him up to the stage. And I ask him to be my grandson or my son or something, and he's trying to ask me if he can go on a vacation with his friends. But I want him to do it in Hindi. And why do I want to do it in Hindi? Because I don't understand Hindi. But I'm going to pick up the process and understand him without understanding from the internet to show the audience how it works. So the kid comes in. I said, okay, ask one, see one, take one, come in. And he was, he was wonderful. You'll see it on YouTube. He goes, that's what I heard. So I answered him. And this, you know, provoked a lot of laughter because we're communicating. He doesn't understand me. I don't understand him, like me and my wife. We just make believe we do. And then I told the audience, I said, watch what happened. What you were watching was just the process. You didn't understand anything, but we communicate just from the heart. The heart is the process. So if you want to go and watch that on YouTube, you can see that. Mindful. Actually, I've watched it twice already, but I'll, I'll be sure to include the link with our podcast. Absolutely. It's, I've watched several of your YouTube videos, and they're all wonderful and enchanting. But that little boy was great because you were actually using gibberish, and uh, he was delightful. That was a, a great example, I thought, of mindfulness. Absolutely. Yeah, I do that a lot. I did that at Google. If you watch my, <laughs> no, you watch my YouTube from Google, I, I took a guy from Portugal. And he spoke Portuguese, and I answered him uh, in gibberish, and we communicated that way. What I do is I take uh, the sentence from uh, Steve Jobs, where he gave a, a commencement speech to the graduating class in 2005 in Berkeley, and he said, the last words he said, say foolish, say foolish. Now, you, 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 go, to a, you go to hear a speech from somebody, was talking to a graduating class of Stanford. You expect no excellence and success and using what you've learned in school. He says, forget all that. Just say foolish. So use that as a, a the background to just go with the process. Be foolish enough to take that leap of faith. When that man told me I was going to be a success big time because in the book of David and the Psalms, it said that God protects schmucks like you. What he was trying to say is, a fool, you're a fool. You do things without thinking, 
you do them without knowing what's going to happen. You don't do any homework. You, don't, you just know it's going to be okay. And that's why I wrote the book, uh, Everlasting Optimism, which will appear in, in Amazon Kindle in December. Yeah, there's, there's so much in it, and really, you're, it's such a gift to people who read it who are not maybe familiar with a lot of this work that we've experienced and other things that you've done that are just incredible. So um, what is currently on your plate, uh, Leonard E. Ravitch? I don't know. What is the E, what is the e for? Edwin. Edwin. Yeah. All right. Edwin. I person by the name of Edwin. Never mind that person by the name of Edwin. About five, six years ago, I was in Singapore, I was doing a workshop uh, for uh, leaders. He used a lot of improvisation. A lot of improvisation. And uh, the guy says his name is <laughs> Edwin. That's my middle name. I've never met anybody. And I can tell you he was scared because people in Singapore at that time had never gone through this kind of workshop. Where there was laughter and humor, it was mostly, you know, let's look at the PowerPoint, you know, let's look at this, and this is what you have to do, everybody's writing up stuff out the way. And this one was just open, and, 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 and people were scared, you know, they were on the edge of madness there. And uh, so I met a person by the name of Edward. What's on my plate now? Yes. I just got back from Kiev in Ukraine. Um, Unexpected call from an agent, my agent. I have an agent that I do movies, a lot of movies here in Israel. And she said, How would you like to uh, go to the Ukraine and uh, begin a movie uh, in English? Uh, I said, what are, what are they looking for? And she said, They're looking for a shepherd rabbi. Shepherd rabbi is a rabbi back in the 1890s, 1900s that lived in in that area in Ukraine, a 60-year-old rabbi I said, darling, you know how old I am. You know I'm 81. She said, yeah, but you're not going to have much trouble with the English, are you? I said, I said, send me the script. I don't know. Maybe I can learn a few words before the audition. And I go to the audition, and a young uh, director Israeli guy says, Would you like to audition? I said, He says, Action. And he goes like this. Now, look, we came from a, a generation where they had cameras. We walked in and got a camera. Nobody ever said to me, Action. <laughs> so when I finished, he says to me, Amazing. I said, why did you say amazing? He said, why did you ask me why I said amazing? I said, because I have many directors tell me amazing and I never heard from them again. I just want to know if you're going to be one of them. And I heard from them when I went to Ukraine and I uh, spent about a week there, eight days. It was a wonderful experience um, filming this uh, movie. Uh, I, if I can show you a picture, you won't believe yes, it. Yes, please. But please do. Uh, this is this is me. Let's see. Yes. See? Yeah, barely. Hold it up just a little bit, Len. And also, it's on Facebook. I can grab it off of Facebook too. 
Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. You got a baby or you can open it up more. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's wonderful. Makeup. Beautiful makeup is there. And I enjoy that very much. Um, what I'm doing now, what I'm doing right now, is I still perform, even at this age. And I perform for companies. And um, the name of my show is, um, I took it actually from Ram Das. Uh, dance Life, Don't Drag It. You remember that dance life? You can either dance life or you can drag it. And the name of my show is Dance Life. And uh, I do um, about an hour and 15 minutes talking about my experiences in life and how I use humor and improvisation to stay completely away from tension, which is a killer, stress-related illnesses is, is doing everybody in, um, staying away from anxiety, just living in here and now because you know that you're developing an attitude of taking any situation and not confronting it, but actually yes ending it. Uh, one of my examples is that uh, I, I went to this coffee shop and I sat down and the waitress came over and said, sir, we can't sit there. I said, why? She said, that's only the manager's seat. So this is a beautiful chance of improvisation and humor. So I said, that means I'm a manager. You're fired. And she started to laugh. <laughs> and I get, I get on a bus, and I sit next to this old geezer my age. I don't call them old. I call them seriously mature. Right. <laughs> and he looks at me, you know, very, very, um, kind of, kind of, you know, kind of potentially, you hit me with a bat. So I took my bag, and this is a beautiful time for improvisation. I took my bag, and I went, naughty, naughty bag. So he started to the old Just the look on his face, he went like, he looked at me like, I think, if my intuition is right, he went back all the way to his childhood when people did things like that when he was a kid, like three, four, five years old. He hit the bag and said, Dad, Dad, naughty bad, say you're sorry. And I saw something in his eyes and went, oh, like, it just took me back, you know. And I have moments like that where I teach people that if you go for the tension, you have a choice. You can dance life, you can yes and life, you can improvise. And I give many, many examples of. You, you remember the, if you saw the, the, my YouTube, I give an example of a time that I forgot my name as a radio announcer. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that was, that was a wonderful way to teach the audience how to laugh. You know, to, to actually just laugh in other words, to teach yoga laughter with a thousand people. And uh, I did that at the AATH, I did it at Google, I, I, I do it all the time here in Israel. I use the gibberish, say foolish. Uh, to stay with the uh, the um, process and don't go so much to the content the way most people do. They say, well, you said this and this. Watch more how it's said. 
feel more, get into the empathy of things. And people leave my performances laughing and coming to me and thanking me and telling me that they had such a great laugh and it was very meaningful. And uh, I use a lot of what I learned from Ram Das, a lot of what I learned from Steve Wilson and Madan Kataria, and all my former teachers you know, are standing on the, on the shoulders of giants. And I, I'm really grateful for all those people who came into my life or I came into theirs. And uh, we all took the leap of faith and did what we did. Um, I also would like you to see, if you have a chance, uh, I was coaching a, a, a boy, man, who had cancer, stage four. And he decided to take a camera to the hospital with him and film everything. And when he got out, he was clean, healthy. And if you go into TED Talks and just type in the cancer that died of laughter. Okay. And I, I coached him. He asked me to tell my plate now, I like to coach people. And I coached him in English and also how to give a TED talk, even though I've never given one myself. Right. And um, he did the TED talk and he just got back from Singapore. I have an agent in Singapore and I told him about AL. His name is A-L-E-Y-A-L. And he invited him to Singapore. He had four performances in Singapore. I just met him today before I came to talk to you. And he wanted to tell me about all the successes and what a great trip it was. And this is opening up for him. He's 35 or 36 years old. Recently married. And this is really opening up for him a whole new world. Because he's Israeli and he had to learn English properly and voice placement. Where to place your voice. Because those voices weren't over here. And I had to get it up and and uh, I'm, I'm watching his success, and I'm, I'm feeling this wonderful, warm feeling that, you know, that I could be his teacher, that I could be his, it's such an honor to be his, his mentor. And so that, that's what's on my plate right now. And anything else that happens, phone could ring, get an email, somebody might watch this interview and say, I'd like to talk to that guy, or something like that. Anything can happen. Just get out there to the world. So when I contacted you through Robert, he, he sent me your uh, link. I said, I wrote to you and you immediately asked me, would you like to appear on, on a Skype blog or something? And I mean, my goodness, should I, should I, maybe I'll talk to my wife about Y-E-S, and. Listener. And I'm watching you as I talk, and I'm watching 
all kinds of processes that are going on with you, and the, your eyes and the color of your skin. Oh, it's just wonderful to talk to you. Vice versa, Lenny. <laughs> so listen, you have a blessed day. And anything you want to shout out to people, um, of course, that Ram Dass saying is beautiful. But as we close the interview, I'm going to invite you to say some closing words. You want me to close this? Yes, I do. Well, it's, it's a sentence that I teach my audiences at the very end of my program. Uh, when somebody asks me how I am, I ask them to please learn this sentence. Now is my best moment, because there is no other moment. And I say that to the audience, I say, I want you to do me a favor, I'm going to ask you how you are. Whether there's a hundred people or a thousand people, I orchestrate it. Now is my best moment. Repeat it after me. How are you? They all say, now is my best moment. There is no other moment. And I would like to get that over to the people who are interested in watching this uh, blog. And one more thing. Laugh as much as you can. <laughs> Goodbye, dear friend. We'll see you soon. Goodbye, dear friend. Wonderful first day. Love you. Thank you. Love you too. Well, thank you, Margo, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. That's <laughs> true. I love it. Love it. We were talking about how our paths have had similar, uh, we've traveled on the similar path not taken, I guess. Yes. Uh, you, you studied uh, under a Gestalt therapist. Uh, I studied under a Gestalt therapist. Uh, the originator, his wife, Laura Pearls, um, and I studied with her, and I also uh, was an actor in, in New York. I was a Shakespearean actor. And uh, as I mentioned, I went to the Board of Education because I had a BA in uh, English literature. And I was looking for extra work because as, uh, as an actor, uh, you have to have what is called a day job. Yes. Because you're out of work most of the time. And so I asked them if I could become a substitute teacher for the New York City school system. And I received a certificate and I was getting calls to come in. Uh, to different schools. And I figure this is really cool because if I get an audition or something and one school calls me up and says, uh, our teacher is missing, can you get down here to Brooklyn within an hour and a half or something? I could always say, I'm really sorry, I have an audition call for you tomorrow. As time went on, I found myself doing the opposite. I found myself telling people who were inviting me for an audition, I'm sorry, I got a classroom today because I just fell in love with teaching. And uh, so we do have similar backgrounds in that case. Also, your connection with the Association of uh, Applied Therapeutic Humor. We are both members at different times. Uh, and also, you just discovered humor through common uh, teachers of, of ours, uh, Joel Goodman and Matt Weinstein, and with the games and things that we both learned from them. And so, uh, and also I met a, a person at an improv a workshop who knew you and sent me one of the interviews that you did with a fellow from Jerusalem uh, who I 
did reserve duty with his father. His father's name was Joe Romanelli. And he did an interview with um, his son. Oh, I did not and, know that fact. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. His father was with me uh, during during reserve duty. And um, he, called, he, he wrote to me and said, if he's ever in Tel Aviv, we've got to get together because our paths are also very similar in many ways. And uh, also in, in the field of the, the theater improvisation, um, and you, you studied also laughter, yoga laughter. Yes. With yes. Steve Wilson, and I did as well, <laughs> and with Madonna Terry. So we have a lot, a lot of things in common. And I think this is wonderful for our first day. I think so, too. <laughs> Why can't there be more first dates like this? I know. It's like we don't need seven degrees. We're like right there next to each other. So in your wonderful book that's going to be published in on Kindle soon, I believe. Is that correct? It's going to be published on Amazon Kindle. It's called uh, Everlasting Optimism. And uh, I loved writing it. And... Um, People who have read it, I've given it to several people. It came out as a book several years ago here in Israel uh, with the title of um, the same title, but I, I called it in English. A funny thing happened on the way to enlightenment, which my wife thought was too long for a title. She was right, and uh, so that I, I sold that for a while. That's on Amazon, but if somebody wants the Kindle edition which is uh, much, much uh, cheaper than getting it, um, the hard copy, uh, it'll be out probably around um, around December, you know, around maybe the beginning of December. Great. And it's a wealth of information. It was like <clears throat> quotes from different people that I've like Victor Frankl, and um, different people that are just have, have had beautiful experiences with the human psyche and experience and it's a spiritual book as well and one of the things I've been doing once I started doing improv I know I saw the therapeutic benefits but I also saw spirituality in it in the comedy, in the commonality and, and same with when we're doing humor and laughter games so I want to ask how a boy that was in special ed ended up where he is today <laughs> That's what I can't understand. Uh, when I was in uh, 7th, 8th, 9th grade, I was put in a special education class. Um, I was considered uh, disturbed, and I can still disturbed, thank God. Uh, the difference between a disturbed child. I think they're coming for you right now. I can hear the sirens in the background. Well, here, knock at the door. Somebody with a white coat is coming in. Um, yeah, I can hear it too. Um, where was I? You see what happens when you get to be 81, you just forget where you are. I have to do this, by the way. When I'm, when I'm giving a lecture or a stand-up routine or a workshop, I ask the audience, please tell me where I was, because at this age, you got to... And they, and they help me out. They said, you're talking about so-and-so. So where was I? You were, you were in sixth or seventh grade, and they decided you right. needed special ed because you were so darn creative, is what I think. But that's well, they called it disturbed, and, and the reason I said that still disturbed, thank God, is I discovered the, the difference between a disturbed child and a disturbed adult. A disturbed child 
gets humiliated and a disturbed adult makes tons of money. So what uh, was to them a disturbed or what they wrote in my uh, record I saw, uh, overly joyous. And uh, I got, <laughs> yeah, I got on pills and um, things became, I mean, there was no difference when I took the pills. Uh, after two weeks, everything was the same, only slower. And uh, I would spend the whole day uh, focusing just on my shoe. And uh, I wasn't fooling around in class anymore. And they even brought my father in to see the educational progress, watching a kid looking at his shoe. That was the only thing that interested me. And I got my best uh, grades as long as I was taking pills because I was quiet. But uh, eventually, I got into college, and that's a very, very interesting story as well. <laughs> I, I put it in my book. Um, and I received, I went to Emerson College in Boston, uh, which is a school for the theater, as well as uh, language literature and uh, also speech therapy. And I finally, finally got my BA in uh, English literature so that I was allowed to teach English for the uh, school system in New York, the New York school system. Uh, while I was an actor, if you, if you want me to go on, um, I got the feeling that I wanted to travel and I didn't have any money. I just needed some adventure. I was, I, I was tired of going to auditions and I was tired of being uh, a Shakespearean actor, and I met a friend who said, if you're looking to travel and you don't have any money, go to the Jewish agency on Park Avenue and tell them you want to go to Israel and become a resident, and you'll get a free ticket on Al Al. You know what Al Al stands for, every landing always late. So, uh, she said that you could also learn Hebrew for free for six months, and they would give me a place to live and food and everything to help me out to become a resident. And I didn't even know where Israel was. I had to go to the library. In those days, you didn't have a smartphone. Uh, what, so I had to... I had, what year was this? 1964. Uh-huh. 63, actually, because I remember the death of Kennedy... Uh, Kennedy assassination uh, influenced my wanting to leave for a while. I was very much uh, moved by that experience. His, his, he, he represented a lot for me as a as a president of the United States. And when he was assassinated, I became rather depressed. And um, so I went to the library to find out where where Israel was, to find out where I'm going. And I opened the maps and I could see Egypt and I could see Syria and I could see Lebanon and I could see Jordan, but I couldn't find Israel. Until I went out into the Mediterranean Sea and it said in the Mediterranean Sea the word Israel with an arrow pointing back to a place that was so small they couldn't write the word Israel in it. So I said, that looks cool. I mean, I didn't know we had any enemies. I didn't know what was, I mean, I didn't know that Egypt at that time was an enemy or, or Lebanon or Jordan. I thought that everybody just loves Jews, you know. Very, very innocent person, especially after the Second World War. 
And um, so I went down to the Jewish agency and I said, can I have my free ticket? I want to go to become a resident of Israel. So the representative said to me, sit down, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, do you have any family there? I said, no. Have any friends there? I said, no. He said, you speak Hebrew? I said, no. He said, what is your profession? I said, Shakespearean actor. He gets up and he says, you're going to succeed big time. And I said, how do you know? And he was very confident about this. He said, well, it says in the book of David, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is I can show you where it says that God protects schmucks like you. It doesn't say the word schmuck. It uses a different word, but in Hebrew, yeah, it's something like an innocent fool, you know, just goes someplace, who doesn't even know the language, doesn't know the people, doesn't know anything, just goes, takes that leap of faith, knowing that everything was going to work out okay. And so I came and um, uh, studied Hebrew for a while. I went to a kibbutz and say, kibbutz was very, very interesting. It was a very, very communistic. You know, everything, everything was equal, everybody worked for free, and everything was done for free, your laundry was done for free, for your work. You know, you, you did a day's work, you got three meals a day, your laundry, uh, if you got ill, you went to the clinic, and everything was just, I mean, uh, perfect, perfect communism. But I uh, loved it in the beginning, and I thought it was, wow, this is ideal. But when it began to infringe on my own uh, liberty and coming from the United States, I mean, we, we, we so worship and idolize freedom, you realize how much you don't have in a socialistic setup or communistic setup that the state or the kibbutz takes over your life and you can't even buy something or study something without the approval of the uh, administrators or wherever was that running for the place at that time. So I went to a place called A Lot. I took a bus. I hope I'm not boring you. Oh my gosh, you... no. I'm totally fascinated. Okay, I'm totally I've been all day. No. And I go, I go down to A Lot, which is on the Gulf of Aqaba, and you can look across the Red Sea and see Jordan perfectly. Yes, yes. And I had no idea that we were. Uh, at odds with each other. I just, you know, just looked over there and saw this beautiful place. <laughs> on November the 5th, 1965, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I got this feeling, and I don't know where it came from, but the feeling said or, or, or presented itself Go to the beach right now. Go to the shore and sit there. Your wife is waiting for you. This was exactly 3 o'clock. I looked at the, at the clock. November the 5th, 3 o'clock, Friday. I said, okay. I'm, you know, I'm the kind of guy, you know, leap of faith. I hear this voice or whatever it's like. My wife is waiting at the beach. Okay. What's the worst that can happen? Don't tell me. So I go to the beach. And I'm sitting there, and I hear this woman talking, and without even looking at her, that's her. And I turned around, and I saw her, 
And I said, how do I introduce myself? Hello, my name is Lenny, and I'm your husband. I mean, that would have knocked her off her feet. I didn't want to do that. So I was enjoying the movie that I knew the script, and she didn't. It's like, you know what's going to happen. I know she's going to be my wife. I know nothing about her. I don't know her parents. I don't even know her last name. But you're in a situation where you know what's going to happen and she doesn't and I'm smiling and I'm laughing and I'm having a great time. Because you're watching a movie with somebody that doesn't know he's never seen that movie before and I know exactly what's going to happen. And we went out that evening to hear a guitar player and we had we just spent the whole evening just talking all day talking and she said to me, I live in Jerusalem. And I have a bus tomorrow at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I have to get on that bus. And I said, okay, uh, can I help you with your luggage? And she said, yeah. I'm staying at this my girlfriend's aunt's place, and she lives right over there. So at 3.15 or something, I came, took her suitcases, and walked her over to the bus stop. And I said, what am I going to tell her? She said, no. So she gets on the bus, and I say to myself, I gotta tell her. So I bring the suitcases, and you know, you put the suitcases on top. There used to be a, a place where you put the suitcases. I looked down at her, she looked up at me, and I said, Go home and tell your parents you're getting married. And in those days, you, you didn't have a phone. I know very few people had a phone. Uh, you had to use a public phone. She had a phone in her home. Because her father was an official uh, for the post office. And doctors had a phone, policemen had a phone, and post office officials had a phone. Doctors had phones. But nobody else did. Everybody was using everybody else's phone. So I said, what time did you get to Jerusalem? And she said, midnight. I said, give me your number. I want to call you and make sure that everything's okay. So I'm coming up next week. And... Um, I had to go out of my house at around 11.30 and start looking for a phone, and there was a, there was a fish restaurant. And <laughs> Yossi's Fish Restaurant. And people were standing in line, and you put in a, a token, and you make a call. And I got the phone, and I put the token in. And I call her, and they're screaming and yelling in her house. Everybody's up, everybody's drinking. Once she's got eight brothers and sisters. And I never came from a family that large. I mean, I, I, uh, I came. I had a sister, and she was an only child. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> so it comes to such a large family. I said, I'm coming up next week, and I flew up to Tel Aviv. From Milan, I flew up, and then from there I took the bus to Jerusalem. I met her brother immediately. She brought her brother to the bus station. Very nice looking fellow. And I didn't know what a Sephardic Jew was. I didn't know the, the Jews from Spain. I thought the Jews only spoke Yiddish because I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. And any Jew that would meet another Jew anywhere, they would speak Yiddish. He was from Romania, or he was from Russia, or he was from the Ukraine, or whatever, from South America. He spoke Yiddish. And I didn't know there was such a thing as the Moranos, the Jews that were expelled from Spain. And her family is that line. So I met this incredible family and they accepted me so beautifully I have never had this kind of a 
uh, love and, and affection and, and it was just lovely. And I took her father to the other room and of course the whole family, all eight children, you know, the mother and grandmother all had their ears to the keyhole. And I said, open up your diary, I want to know when is the first day we can get married. And he opens up his diary, he said, the first day you can get married, now this is November the, I met her on the 5th, so it would be the 12th. This is November the 12th, I said, can we get married next week? He said, no, it's Hanukkah. He said, the earliest you can get married is the 21st. I said, write that down. That was 52 years ago. We're still together, and we've had quite a ride, quite a ride. Of course, if you test her, her side of the story, it'll be a lot different. She has a different version. But uh, that's, most of my, that's most of my life. I'm just taking that leap of faith, just listening to that, you know, this is the time to do this, this is the time to do that. Uh, when you asked me if I did tell in Christ, and I said, no, I've heard so many wonderful things about it. And I never did it because that, there wasn't that, that thing inside of me that said, go for it. When I read the style, I felt vibrations in my body. When I heard about the Association of Applied Therapeutic Humor, I said, that's it, I'm going, I'm going. And I'm going to study with, with Laura Frozen. I'm going to study with Dr. Katari and Steve Wilson and Joel Goodman and Matt Weinstein. And study all these things. I didn't know why. And uh, but that 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 was that's more or less how I, I live my life. It's just hanging on to uh, you know it's like water skiing. You, know, you hang on and you're here and here now, and you can go this far this way, and you can go this far this way. But you go where the boat goes, and that <laughs> that's in more or less my my line to to the spirit. Just keep holding on to that line. You know, I and it's love a wonderful, you. I, wonderful line. I've had terrible things happen to me, but they were wonderful too. <laughs> I just listen to this heartwarming story about how you met, and you know, we forgot to mention Annette Goodman, uh, Annette Goodhart. Annette Goodhart, right? Yes, yeah. I mentioned Annette and uh, her book, her boat, Tee But um, you know, the, the basis of improv is acceptance, and they talk about yes and, and so you've lived a yes and life. You say yes, and I'm going to do it when it feels right, and you and you take those risks, and that's such a beautiful thing. And yes, some bad things, some good things. You know the story about uh, good luck, bad luck. The one about the you've heard that one, uh, right? Yeah, well, that's terrible. Well, you, you never know. Huh? And then he said you're of course going to win. Yes, yes. It's all that terrible. You never know. And the horse comes back with another horse. Oh, that's great luck. You never know. <laughs> it keeps going on like that. You never know. You never know. So, I, right. And I knew that you would know that story. So um, you, you talked a little bit about what attracted you to Gestalt uh, therapy. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, like, how old were you when you were introduced to it? And what was going on in your life when you were first exposed to Gestalt? Well, uh, I had just come back. See, my wife and I, in 1967, uh, decided we had, we had a son then. He was six months old. His name was Martin. And um, he just, my sister wrote to me and said, I never had the opportunity of seeing your, your wife. And my mother was also in 
in Birmingham, Alabama. She could come and you could stay at my place until you find a place to find a job. And so took the leap and went to Birmingham, Alabama. Now, Birmingham, Alabama is a, is a strange channel because at that time there was uh, apartheid. I mean, there were the black uh, theaters and black schools and black water fountains and black toilets and white toilets only on the bus. The black had to sit in the back and the white in the front. Was, it was total uh, mess all through the South, not only Alabama, Georgia. Louisiana. And in 1967, there was a court order from Washington saying schools must be integrated. Now, when I got to Birmingham, there was no such thing as a male teacher, a male white teacher. Uh, if you saw a male white teacher, he was a teacher because he was really a coach, the football coach, or the basketball coach. And they had him teach history, head teachers. And so there were mostly women because the pay scale in Alabama, Jefferson County, was $500 a year more than the poverty level. So people who teach, were teaching were making $500 above the poverty level. And so when I went to the Board of Education, they said, you know, here I am, white, Jewish, male, are you willing to go to a black school uh, and become the first white teacher in the history of Alabama to go to a white school? Because we can't, we can't get volunteers. I said, of course. And I didn't care about pay. I just knew that that's the place where I had to be. My wife at the same time got a job uh, teaching Hebrew at one of the Hebrew schools, Jewish day schools. And uh, I saw what talent I had there. Um, I heard them singing. I heard them. I saw them dancing. I said, "Would you guys like to do a musical called Guys and Dolls?" And they said, "Well, we saw it on television. You, you, you want to do that?" So I went to the principal and I said, "Can I do a musical?" He said, "Whatever you want. I'll give you all the support you need." And I had auditions, and they were amazing. And we did the first musical in 1967, mm. 1968, I think it was. That was also the year that Martin Luther King was, was assassinated. And it was amazing. They did Guys and Dolls, and such an amazing show. It was such a joy to direct them. And then the next year I said, okay, guys, we're going to do Music Man. And some reason, God or somebody in space out there heard me because what's appearing on television, how many stations do you get in Birmingham at that time in the 60s? Uh, you're, you're, uh, the music man is on and everybody's watching it. And we did that. And then Bye Bye Birdie. And I got my master's degree uh, at a place called Sanford University in, in Birmingham. Now, this is a Baptist university. Uh, people usually study to become a pastor. But they had a program in education for, for uh, MA. So I go there, and I give them my records, and they said, we can't accept you. 
And I said, why? And they said, because you have a 78 average. And in order to study for an MA, you have to have an 84 average. Now, I know I'm going to study it. It's like I knew I was going to marry my wife. Okay, so i got to go through this movie. Okay, let me speak to the president. Okay, I know I'm going to study there because it's going to happen. You just know. So, you want to see the president of the university? I said, yeah, I'm going to talk to the person. They never had a request like this from one of the students. So they make an appointment with me, and Dr. Allen is sitting there in his office, and he takes my record, he has my records, and he throws them across the desk. And he says, you can't be accepted. You don't have an 84 average, you have a 78 from your, from your BA. And I don't know where it came from. I didn't prepare. It was a yes and moment. I looked at him and I said, is this a Baptist university? He said, yes. I said, tell me, if Jesus Christ was sitting where you are now, would he accept me? Don't know where it came from. I just knew that I was going to study there, and the script came. Mm -hmm. And he goes like, you know, you see his body language. You know, he was getting all, okay, on condition, boom. <laughs> And I got in and I got my master's degree. And after four years of spending at Winona High School, which is an all-black school, white teachers began to come in. They saw that I was there and I'm still alive. One day, the Black Panthers came to my class. That was the day after Martin Luther King was killed. And all of a sudden, I didn't realize what was happening, but I'm sitting at my desk in the classroom, and the entire football team is standing around my desk. I said, what are you guys doing here? He said, Mr. Rathers, we're not going to let them get you. They're coming after you. We're not going to let them. And they stood around my desk like this, like a, like a football. You know, and the black bathrooms came into my classroom and started to throw furniture around and stuff. And I was looking at this as if, you know, this is not real. This is the news. You know, this. And one of the guys stands up on my desk from the black bathroom. He said, points to me. You know, he's up on my desk. He's pointing down to me. He said, this is the white man who sends the black man to Vietnam to kill the yellow man. He's dead. And the kids were looking at him, and the football team was looking at me, just making sure that I wasn't going to get hurt in any way. And the guy on, on, the, on, the, on my desk looked down at me as if I was going to say, oh, here, here, here this young man. And I didn't do anything. I just looked at him and said, that's cool, you know. That's pretty good. White man sends the black man to Vietnam to kill the young man. I'm the devil. Cool. And I was just, I was, it was a beautiful script. Yes, and. So he finally leaves and says, Come out with me, let's march for Martin Luther King. One student left. And uh, I just wanted to put that in as one of my adventures. And when I got my master's degree, I got a call from the University of Alabama. They wanted me to be a speech and drama um, lecturer, or what do they call it, uh, instructor. And that was heaven. That was absolutely heaven. By this time, I had three children. And I realized something. If I stay in America, my children get... My sister, my mother had died in 73, in 72. 
It was not 1973. And the only half-family I had was my sister. I said, what do one of my children get? An aunt. If they go back to Israel, they get a grandmother, a great-grandmother, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, you name it. If you're going to make a decision like this, to go back to the, from the richest country in the world, one of the smallest, poorest countries in the world, you better have a pretty good reason. And family, for me and for my wife, we have the same values uh, about family, and she agreed to come back to Israel. And um, when I came, when we came back, uh, I was offered a job in Nazareth to be a supervisor for English teachers. And uh, I often tell people I was in a special education class, and they said, "But you're a supervisor of teachers." And I said, yeah, well, that shows you the level of education here in Israel. <laughs> so that brought me to, uh, when I picked up the Yosemite, how did I get to Gestalt? A friend of mine who is a psychologist living in another village next to mine said, I think you would like this book. And he gave me the book called uh, the South Therapy Verbatim by Fritz Pearls. Right, right. I couldn't put that book down. I read it again. There was something about this that was missing in my life as a director. As a director, I like to get into the emotions. I like to get into people's uh, authenticity. And I never saw anything so authentic as this. This was true improvisation. True improvisation. To go with the moment, to go with the feeling, to go with the experience. My whole body began to vibrate. I said, this is who I am now. This is what I'm going to be. I went to New Orleans, to the South Institute of New Orleans and studied there. Got a degree, a certificate. And it said, where's my certificate? The South Institute of New Orleans. This is to certify the letter E. Ravage. And satisfactory completed the hours that I needed. So I come back to Israel, and the first thing I do, I'm living up in Nazareth, which is right near Haifa. I open up an institute. And I didn't really have the experience. I just had a, a few classes in, in, in New Orleans. And I said, I have to do this. I have to take that leap of faith. I'm going to get killed. You know, but there's also a thing as going into battle and not coming back with scars if you don't die. And that nearly happened as well. But uh, seriously, anyway. But uh, that was that was the thing that brought me and attracted me to the thought was that it's actually a therapy of improvisation. You don't have a theory or analysis. You don't use your mind. You don't ask questions about the past. You're not, an you're not an archaeologist. You're with a person here and now. What is going on here and now? Because the healing is in the, in the, um, Martin Buber called it the I vow. Right. It's right. in the moment. Right. Because I'm checking a person how they're communicating with me. And I had to go to therapy myself, which is a very interesting story. Because uh, I went to therapy because I said I can't, I can't take care of other people. I don't go to therapy. 
So I do therapy, and I'm talking a lot about my wife and my therapist says, uh, I want to meet your wife. So I go home and I say, my therapist wants to meet you. My wife is a psychiatric social worker. And she, said, she says, it's not going to help. <laughs> I said, that's great advice for me from a psychiatric social worker. She finally agreed. And we went in there. And the next week, I went to my therapist. She said, you know, you're a very, very outgoing person. And you're almost on the edge of madness. But when you're with your wife, you're like this very quiet introvert. I said, I didn't notice that. And I went home. I told my wife, my therapist says that I'm, without you, I'm magnified 100%. And when I'm with you, I'm like a turtle, I mean, a, a, what do you call it, a, a turtle in a hailstorm. And she looks over and she says, Bullshit! Bullshit! So when people ask me, how did you last so long in your marriage, 52 years? And I say it's because of the most marvelous emotion in the world. Fear. <laughs> She's afraid to be alone, and I'm afraid of her. Deathly of her. Snare of my. She walks in. The first thing I do is I start to shake. I mean, I, it's, it's such fear, I have no idea. And I think any man who admits that, you know, I, I, look at, I look at women in general, or people in general, but mostly women, as perfect. I never met an imperfect woman. I can find plenty of perfect men, but I never met an imperfect woman. So I, whatever my wife says to me, uh, we, we should be ready at six. I say, whatever you say. She says, why don't you give me a new thing? I said, because you're perfect. Everything you decide is perfect. You want She says, well, the reason I want to go is six. I said, don't want to explain. Perfect people don't have to explain anything. You said six, I'm ready at six. That's it. So it's from fear. I love being afraid. I love it. That's beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. I want to get back to the idea of be here now, which our dear friend Ram Das coined many years ago. A beautiful, yeah. and uh, Ram Das's work with death and dying is something incredible. Um, oh, very impressed. Yes. You know, very old. Yes. yes, wonderful, wonderful. This had a tremendous impact on me. Me too. How did he impact you, Lenny? Well, I was studying the shop at that time. Ah. And I was also um, facilitating workshops when I read this book. And it was a true Gestalt experience because the man was living another life. He was living an academic life. And suddenly this change came over him when he realized that this is not who I am. And the shell fell off. And he went on this spiritual journey uh, to Tibet, was it? Wherever he went. And looked for his guru. And when he found his guru, it was like when I found my wife. It was exactly the same kind of thing. He knew it, that this man was going to be his guru. And his whole... His whole um, he had a, 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 something happen to him, a, a heart attack or something, or, or a, a brain injury or something. Something happened uh, lately, about, when I say lately, eight, ten years ago. And it, it, it affected his speech. But he, for me, was 
a real person. And this and going with the shop together, it, it, it's sort of like everything came together, everything met together. And at that time, if you remember, back in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, um, right around the writing of that book, music began to change around the world. You, know, you had uh, the Beatles doing their you know, India stuff. You had um, people who were playing from soul. They weren't playing just for the money, for what it's become, you know, just let's sell these records, let's get you on TV, let's stretch you like this, let your hair up like that. It was really soul music. Unfortunately, a lot of the uh, artists uh, burnt themselves out and died very young. But that was a change in music and a change in the whole civilization of the United States. It was called the, it was called the uh, Flower Children at that time, the Flower Children. And um, things began to change rapidly and then they went back to, back to where they were before. Right. Well, it was, but, the, it was the years of tune in, turn on, and drop out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yes. Timothy, what was his name? Leary? Leary? Oh, Timothy Leary, yes, and the big LSD experience, and of course. But I was yeah. one of those flower, I was at Woodstock, I was one of those flower children. All you need yeah. is love, but you do need to pay the rent sometimes. So, uh, but you know, oh. this spiritual revolution that started going around the world and is still going on in places, even here in the States. I believe we have this term mindfulness that has been so big, a big catchword. And of course, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, it's wonderful his work, but mindfulness predates all this, the concept of be here now and gestalt predates this fascination with what we're calling mindfulness today, because that's what we're, we had learned years ago. Uh, do you, do you agree or disagree? Point counterpoint. Well, I do agree. Mindfulness is actually what I learned when I studied in Right. It's, it, then we used to call it awareness. To be, to, to what, what was Seraphiel about was just becoming aware and make, make choices from that aware place, not from the automatic uh, recording in my head or something, or what my parents told me or what my grandparents told me. Um, it, it, uh, it, it comes from a place of choice. When, when you become mindful, today they call it mindfulness, in Gestalt they call it awareness. Uh, the Zen Buddhists call it awakening, to become awake. Right. Um, it's all the same thing. It's about being aware or being mindful of what is going on in the here and now. What am I experiencing in the here and now? Uh, I don't know if you saw my, my YouTube talk in Geneva. Uh, where I talk about mindfulness and education. Uh, if you go to YouTube, okay. you can just write my name and type in mindfulness and education, okay. and I give a talk on that. And I also have audience participation. Um, you can watch that as well. It's like improvisation. I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean by improvisation. Um, how do I introduce it to an audience? These are children and teachers in Geneva for the international school. A huge audience, maybe close to a thousand people. And I was introducing them to the concept of that education teaches the mind a lot. 
but there's not enough teaching of the heart and where are our decisions being made and where does how do you raise a family from your intellect you raise children, I have nine grandchildren now, I can't be intellectual with them uh, so I, I taught I, on the stage, you can go to see that I, I talk about the fact that there are two things going on that I learned in your shot when you're talking to somebody or having a meeting, what they call a meeting, dialogue. There's the content and then there's the process. The process is all about the body language, the skin color, the eyes, what happens to the eyes, the heartbeat, you can feel that. You can actually sense someone's feelings. You, be, you develop an empathy which is so much missing in our education system. And, uh, and so what I did was I, I said, I want to give you an example of that. How do you teach the heart? And I'm just going to give you a small smidgen of an example. And I said, who speaks a language other than German, Italian, because that's what they speak there, English, French, who speaks another language? child raises his hand, he's from India, he says, I speak Hindi, I invite him up to the stage, and I ask him to be my grandson or my son or something, and he's coming to ask me if he can go on a vacation with his friends, but I want him to do it in Hindi, and why do I want him to do it in Hindi, because I don't understand Hindi, but I'm going to pick up the process and understand him without understanding from the internet. To show the audience how it works. So the kid comes in, I said, okay, ask one, see one, take one, come in. And he was, he was wonderful. You'll see it on YouTube. He goes, that's what I heard. So I answered him, and this you know, provoked a lot of laughter because we're communicating. He doesn't understand me. I don't understand him, like me and my wife. We just make believe we do. And then I told the audience, I said, watch what happened. What you were watching was just the process. You didn't understand anything, but we communicate just from the heart. The heart is the process. So if you want to go and watch that on, on YouTube, you can see that. Um, Mindful. Actually, I've watched it twice already, but I'll, I'll be sure to include the link with our podcast. Absolutely. It's, I've watched several of your YouTube videos, and they're all wonderful and enchanting. But that little boy it was great because you were actually using gibberish, and uh, he was delightful. That was a, a great example, I thought, of mindfulness. Absolutely. Yeah, I did that a lot. I did that at Google. If you watch my, you watch the pieces from Google. I, I took a guy from Portugal, and he spoke Portuguese, and I answered him uh, in gibberish, and we communicated that way. What I do is I take uh, the sentence from. Uh, Steve Jobs, where he gave a, a commencement speech to the graduating class in 2005 in Berkeley, and he said, the last words he said, stay foolish, stay foolish. Now, you, 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 go to a, you go to hear a speech from somebody who's talking to a graduating class of staff, you expect no excellence and success, and using what you've learned in school, and he says, Forget all that. Just say foolish. So use that as a 
uh, the background to just go with the process, be foolish enough to take that leap of faith. When that man told me I was going to be a success big time, because in the book of David and the Psalms it said that God protects schmucks like you. What he was trying to say is, a fool, you're a fool. You do things without thinking, you do them without knowing what's going to happen, you don't do any homework, you, don't, you just know it's going to be okay. And that's why I wrote the book, uh, Everlasting Optimism. Yeah, there's there's so much in it, and really, there, it's such a gift to people who read it, who are not maybe familiar with a lot of this work that we've experienced and other things that you've done that are just incredible. So, um, what is currently on your plate, uh, Leonard E. Ravitch? I don't know what is the E. What is the E for? Edwin. Edwin. Yeah. All right. Edwin. I find that person by the name of Edwin. Never mind that person, person by the name of Edwin. About five, six years ago, I was in Singapore, I was doing a workshop uh, for uh, leaders. We used a lot of improvisation. A lot of improvisation. And uh, a guy tells me his name is <laughs> Edwin. I see. That's my middle name. I never met anybody. And I could tell he was scared because people in Singapore at that time had never gone through this kind of workshop. Where there was laughter and humor, it was mostly, you know, let's look at the PowerPoint, you know, let's look at this, and this is what you have to do, but you're writing stuff down to learn. And this one was just open, and, 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 and people were scared, you know, they were on the edge of madness there. And uh, so I met a person by the name of Edwin. What's on my plate now? Yes. I just got back from Kiev in Ukraine. Um, Unexpected call from an agent, my agent. I have an agent that I do movies, a lot of movies here in Israel. And she said, How would you like to uh, go to the Ukraine and uh, begin a movie uh, in English? Uh, I said, what are, what are they looking for? And she said, They're looking for Shepherd Rabbi. Shepherd Rabbi is a rabbi back in the 1890s, 1900s that lived in in that area in Ukraine, a 60-year-old rabbi, I said, darling, you know how old I am, you know I'm 81. She said, yeah, but you're not going to have much trouble with the English, are you? I said, I said, send me the script, I don't know, maybe I can learn a few words before the audition. And I go to the audition, and a young uh, director, Israeli guy uh, says, Would you like to audition? I said, he says, he says, action. And he goes like this. Now, look, we came from a, a generation where they had cameras. We walked in and had a camera. Nobody ever said to me, action. <laughs> so when I finished, he says to me, amazing. I said, why did you say amazing? He said, why did you ask me why I said amazing? I said, because I have many directors tell me amazing and I never heard from them again. I just want to know if you're going to be one of them. And I heard from them when I went to Ukraine and I uh, spent about a week there, eight days. It was a wonderful experience um, filming this uh, movie 
Uh, I, if I can show you a picture, you won't believe it. Yes, please. But uh, this is this is me. Yes. Yeah, barely. Hold it up just a little bit, Lynn. And also, it's on Facebook. I can grab it off of Facebook, too. It's beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Is that amazing? I'm going to open it up more. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, it. yes. That's wonderful. Makeup. Beautiful makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And I enjoyed that very much. Um, what I'm doing now, what I'm playing right now, is I still perform, even at this age. And I perform for companies, and um, the name of my show is, um, I took it actually from Ram Das, uh, Dance Life, Don't Drag It. You remember that dance life? You can either dance life or you can drag it. And the name of my show is Dance Life. And uh, I do um, about an hour and 15 minutes talking about my experiences in life and how I use humor and improvisation to stay completely away from tension, which is a killer, stress-related illnesses is, is doing everybody in, um, staying away from anxiety, just living in here now because you know that you're developing an attitude of taking any situation and not confronting it but actually yes ending it uh one of my examples is that um i, I went to this coffee shop and i sat down the waitress came over and said sir you can't sit there i said why she said, that's only the manager's seat so this is a beautiful chance for improvisation and humor so I said, that means I'm a manager. You're fired. And she started to laugh. <laughs> and I get, I get on a bus, and I'm sitting next to this old geezer at my age. I don't call them old. I call them seriously mature. Right. <laughs> and he looks at me, you know, very, very, um, kind of, you know, kind of potentially. You hit me with your bag. So I took my bag, and this is a beautiful time for improvisation. I took my bag and I went, naughty, naughty bag. So he said, I went to the old geezer. Just the look on his face, he went like, he looked at me like, I think, if my intuition is right, he went back all the way to his childhood when people did things like that when he was a kid, like three, four, five years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He hit the bag and said, bad, bad. Naughty bad, say you're sorry. And I saw something in his eyes and went, oh, it just took me back, you know. And I have moments like that where I teach people that if you go for the tension, you have a choice. You can dance life, you can yes and life, you can improvise. And I give many, many examples of. You, you remember the, if you saw the, the, my YouTube, I give an example of the time that I forgot my name as a radio announcer. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that was, that was a wonderful way to teach the audience how to laugh. You know, to, to actually just laugh for no reason, teach yoga laughter with a thousand people. And 
uh, I did that at the AFTH, I did it at Google, I, I do it all the time here in Israel. I use the gibberish, say foolish, uh, to say with the, uh, the um, process and don't go so much to the content the way most people do. They say, well, you said this and this. Watch more how it's said. Feel more. Get into the empathy of things. And people leave my performances laughing and coming to me and thanking me and telling me that they had this great laugh and it was very meaningful. And uh, I use a lot of what I learned from Ram Das, a lot of what I learned from Steve Wilson and Madan Kataria, and all my former teachers are standing on the, on the shoulders of giants. And I, I'm really grateful for all those people who came into my life or I came into theirs. And uh, we all took the leap of faith and did what we did. Um, I also would like you to see, if you have a chance, uh, I was coaching a, a, a boy, man, who had cancer, stage four. And he decided to take a camera to the hospital with him and film everything. And when he got out, he's clean, healthy. And if you go into TED Talks and just type in the cancer that died of laughter. Okay. And I, I coach him. He asked me to tell my plate now, I like to coach people. And I coach him in English and also how to give a TED talk, even though I've never given one myself. Right. And um, he did the TED talk and he just got back from Singapore. I have an agent in Singapore and I told him about AL. His name is A-L-E-Y-A-L. And he invited him to Singapore. He had four performances in Singapore. I just met him today before I came to talk to you. And he wanted to tell me about all the successes and what a great trip it was. And this is opening up for him. He's 35 or 36 years old, recently married. And this is really opening up for him a whole new world because he's Israeli and has to learn English properly and voice placement, where to place your voice. Because those voices weren't over here. I had to get it up. And, and uh, I'm, I'm watching his success and I'm. I'm feeling this wonderful, warm feeling that, you know, that I could be his teacher, that I could be his, it's such an honor to be his, his mentor. And so that, that's what's on my plate right now. And everything else that happens, phone could ring, get an email, somebody might watch this interview and say, I'd like to talk to that guy, or something like that. Anything can happen. Just get out there to the world. So when I contacted you through Robert, he sent me your uh, link. I said, I wrote to you, and you immediately asked me, would you like to appear on, on a Skype blog or something? And I didn't, my goodness, should I, should I, maybe I'll talk to my wife about it. Y-E-S, and. <laughs> and I am so grateful you, you have and you are, and I, I am in the company of geniuses. You know, Del Close, considered the father of improv, talked about treating each other as geniuses, poets, and brilliant. And uh, that beautiful sense that we have that we can almost immediately fall in love with each other by just being yeah. here. By just being here now, looking at your eyes, and feeling like I've known you forever. 
And I, Great. Am, I, I am so grateful. And I'm hoping that this is just the first in a series of interviews with you, sir, that we yes. might try some more. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had to say that. What a setup. No, no, no. It's a joy talking to you. You're such a wonderful listener. And I'm watching you as I talk. And I'm watching all kinds of processes that are going on with you. And your eyes and the color of your skin. And, oh, it's just, it's just wonderful to talk to you. Vice versa, Lenny. <laughs> so listen, you have a blessed day. And anything you want to shout out to people, um, of course, that Ram Dass saying is beautiful, but as we close the interview, I'm going to invite you to say some closing words. You want me to close this? Yes, I do. Well, it's, it's a sentence that I teach my audiences at the very end of my program. Uh, when somebody asks me how I am, I ask them to please learn this sentence. Now is my best moment, because there is no other moment. And I say that to the audience, I said, I want you to do me a favor, I'm going to ask you how you are. Whether there's a hundred people or a thousand people, I offer to them. Now is my best moment. Repeat it after me. How are you? They all say, now is my best moment. There is no other moment. And I would like to get that over to the people who are interested in watching this uh, blog. And one more thing. Laugh as much as you can. <laughs> Goodbye, dear friend. We'll see you soon. Goodbye, dear friend. Wonderful first day. Love you.